0: Love, talk Radio. This is Pat Salber with the Doctor Waves in on radio or on podcast, uh, to be more accurate. And uh, we have a very interesting guest today, Doctor Nick Van der Hayden. Did I say it right, Nick?
1: Oh, absolutely. People uh, munged it in lots of different ways, but uh, that was very good. Thank you.
0: Okay, excellent. So uh, Nick and I have known each other for quite a while now, um, and I'm excited to have him join us as he has a new position as the chief medical officer at Base Health. Congratulations, Nick, on uh, this new position. And his role there is to serve as the voice of the physician and the patient at the company. And I'm glad somebody's gonna do that because when you're in healthcare, there should be the voice of the physician and the patient. And he will bring um, strategic insights into product development and marketing to the company. And he has a huge history in healthcare. Um, Prior to Base Health, he was Chief Medical Officer at Dell Healthcare and Life Sciences. And Nick, I think when we first met, you were actually working at Nuance on um, the uh, artificial voice or whatever you, you, you want to call it. So you've had a lot of different, very interesting um, positions that I think um, should be very valuable to this uh, new position that you have at Base Health. So I thought that we would start out by um, having you give us a thumbnail, thumbnail description of what Base Health is doing. Um, What's the company up to? Uh,
1: yeah, so perfect. Thank you, uh, Pat. It's uh, great to, to be here and uh, always a pleasure to chat with you and uh, uh, catch up. So thanks for the invitation. Um, uh, clearly, uh, excited about the opportunity with Base Health and, um, you, you know, for a number of reasons, but um, I, I think it will become evident as uh, I, I describe what it is that they do. Um, So lots of people talk about uh, population health and, um, you know, it can be hard to sort of tease out uh, differences uh, and certainly uh, hard to uh, understand what it is that um, uh, results from some of this uh, population health and analytics that people are uh, uh, offering. So, what Base Health does, um, and it's founded on this base uh, or, or, or foundational knowledge base, um, they took uh, the PubMed database um, and they uh, created a knowledge base by processing somewhere in the order of 150 million or so articles um, uh, through a guided uh, machine learning process. And the key here is that. This wasn't just a dump and run. It was uh, really a very um, uh, involved process that included lots of clinician uh, input and um, uh, processing to refine that knowledge base uh, so that we could get the maximum value from uh, the content that is essentially in uh, the publications and all the knowledge that we've. Uh, validated through scientific learnings and and publications.
0: Um, And so, Nick, uh, Nick, let me just interrupt for a second. Um, Isn't this what Watson already did? Well,
1: so I I think one of the the challenges of uh, artificial intelligence is you can throw everything into the hopper and say, here, learn about it. But let me give you a good example of where that just doesn't work um, with a machine learning algorithm. So the machine takes the knowledge and produces, um, you know, in the first instance, correlations that, you know, we hope moves to causation. Um, But in a a recent example of uh, that process where the machine was uh, loaded up with insights around asthma patients from a particular institution, and it was learning about those asthma patients and what were good predictors of outcome. And one of the things that came out from this automated process was Uh, that asthma patients that were admitted to the ICU, that was a a predictor of uh, a good outcome. In fact, if you were an ICU uh, patient, then you were likely to have a better, more successful outcome for treatment of asthma. And you as a clinician and I as a clinician know that just doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, um, it's
0: counterintuitive. These are the really, the really sick people with really bad asthma. Right. And, and so here's what happened.
1: So when you go back and look at that particular data, you discover that uh, in this particular institution, they had a policy that said asthma patients that came in were routed directly to the intensive care unit. And that was because they knew that they were at greater risk and the the interventions uh, required required a higher level of skill, higher level of um, clinical interaction. And as a result, they got better care and more intensive care by being in uh, the intensive care unit. Um, But the machine didn't understand that correlation, didn't have that data, and came up with something that was patently false. So here's where base health differs from, you know, these sort of generalized programs. So we've got this guided data set. And uh, the best analogy I've heard to date is is one of GPS. So I actually had a GPS unit when they were first made available. I was living in Saudi Arabia at the time. Um, We would, uh, for entertainment, go out into the desert. And the GPS was uh, truly a wonderful device because it allowed you to find your way back. But it contained no data. There was no roadmap. And the, the way that we used it was to get some sense of direction uh, to get us to the point of um, access. So you know, it was really just a general guide. And we'd look at things and say, oh, yes, we, we need to be over here. But how we got there—if you just took the straight line—you'd end up, you know, driving over a a ravine or a wadi um, or up, you know, massive hills that were unclimbable um, uh, in in the equipment. Like the the early days
0: of of some of the the programs that we had on our cell phones, where you ended up, you know, at at a dead end, and where you wanted to be was across the freeway, but you couldn't get there.
1: Yes. Exactly right. So, what Base Health does that's entirely different is that whole guided, um, uh, clinician-guided knowledge base that is really the um, uh, the key to this is the roadmap. So, when you load GPS with all of the knowledge of the roads. You can now get from A to B uh, with insight. And that's what we do. That's different to this, hey, we've got something, throw everything in and see what comes out. This is really a very precision-guided uh, knowledge base. And you know. And so
0: I want to ask you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I, I just have to ask you, how, so how exactly do the clinicians create the roadmap? Are you using... Uh, Well accepted clinical practice guidelines that are detailed like the American Diabetes Association guideline for for diabetic care or are you putting a bunch of experts in a room and they say you should, you know, take a left at the next corner. How, How explain the process to us.
1: So so it's a process of gathering the right clinical expertise uh, to bring that together and use the most appropriate resources based on the particular specialty, the disease process, and so forth. So, you know, where there are practical and accepted standardized guidelines, those can obviously be incorporated where they don't exist using, um, you know, and I hesitate to use this word when we talk about clinicians, but consensus. And, you know, you can reach consensus over uh, treatments and, you know, uh, uh, remove the outliers, um, uh, you know, from a protocol um, that whole process was refined over a period of uh, about four years, where they created this. So, it really involved, guided, uh, clinician-led, and I think that's one of the key assets here.
0: And and you used a variety of clinicians, or was it a small number of clinicians who happened to work for the company?
1: No, so as, as, as many as appropriate. So, uh, you know, uh, th- this is the kind of resource where you don't want to be limited to uh, individuals uh, that you have access to immediately from geography or, um, uh, you know, so broadening that as much as possible so that you get the best possible expertise in that process to create that knowledge base. Okay, um,
0: so now you have a knowledge base that's got a a roadmap of, say, for example, how I would go from a diabetic foot ulcer through an infection to an amputation or hopefully maybe even avoid the amputation. So now now you have that roadmap. Um, Are you putting clinical data in in any way? I mean, the old disease management programs used um, claims data, uh, you know, including pharmacy data. Um, How how are you getting at um, the, the clinical aspects
1: so so this is the next sort of aspect to the, uh, the, the, the difference and the value proposition that I think is, you know, very unique in this space. And whilst many people talk about this population health, we've focused on a, a very narrow sort of corridor um, and, and specific patient group. So I think there's lots of focus on the what, what are, are typically termed high utilizers, um, you know, very sick patients in in your uh, risk pool. Um, they typically are high risk. Uh, they're typically costly, um, and you know uh, fairly well identified specifically on claims data, which tends to be the majority of the sort of inputs that people uh, use. We took a much broader um, uh, approach to this, and claims data is useful but we don't limit ourselves to claims data. We'll pull in electronic medical record information, pharmacy information, laboratory information. Some of that may be in the EMR, if it's not you know, connecting the dots, as it were. And then we go after a very specific um, cohort of patients. It's, it's a relatively narrow group that sit um, and are essentially what we describe as invisible. So the invisible patient, others might know it as the rising risk. The ones that show up, um, and the first time they really um, appear in most people's systems is through claims um, where they have very significant clinical disease. And from a clinician standpoint, that's that sick person that shows up in the emergency room who, if you'd seen them three months, six months, or you know, at least some point before um, a significant clinical event or catastrophe occurred in their healthcare um, uh, uh, delivery, um, we could have played some intervention and either mitigated or potentially even prevented. Those are really people that desperately need the expertise um, and the clinical support from uh, the the healthcare system and the healthcare team. We find those individuals. So I
0: get what, I'm sorry, I get that you, so what you want to do is to uh, predict which of those invisible patients' um, early intervention could do something to change their trajectory from, you know, something catastrophic to to, to something, you know, perhaps it can be managed on an outpatient basis. And people in the past in in the old days of disease management, and even once it got relabeled, population health management, um, tried to do that with the tools that they had. They they would look at, you know, um, certain measurements that uh, that weren't done. For example, this guy hasn't had his hemoglobin A1C. This guy hasn't had his, you know, creatinine uh, measured or whatever. So they they tried to do that with kind of closing gaps. Um, how how are you how are you guys doing it? Um, you're using I mean t- claims in EHR and lab and so forth are... All things that other programs have done what what else are you using are you using genomics or information if it's available about someone's microbiome how, how are you going to really take this to the next level
1: so let's, let's put genomics to one side for a second because we do talk and, and do have uh, a wealth of data around that, but I want to put that to one, one side and focus on what's available today. So an awful lot of this information is available, and, or at least there are some insights. So we have a wealth of data, we're just not looking at it with the right lens. And you know, you're right, so if a patient shows up and they have lots of missing data, and especially the rising risk, they tend to have lots of gaps in the data. So, what do most of the traditional uh, population health programs that are looking for these patients do? They take the average and insert that in for that patient. Well, the reality is there is no average patient. You know, just based on the distribution, that's a very poor model uh, to use. So, we've developed an entirely different model. Again, part of this machine learning artificial intelligence, we take uh, a two to three year history uh, data set for the population that we're focused on. So in the case of, you know, uh, one of our customers, Banner Health, we took their uh, historical data that they had available and created a knowledge base. So we build up this precision um, population health model from the individual patient up. So when we fill in those gaps, for the, let's take the HB1AC um, as an example. When we put that in, it won't be the same for all patients. It will be driven by the other factors. And obviously, the more factors uh, or data elements you have, the more accurate your guesstimate is going to be for the missing data. But we're already Far in excess in terms of that accuracy level, and let me validate that. So, you know, it's easy for me to sit here and say, well, you know, that's the case. But here's what we did. So, Banner said, yeah, sure, we've seen all this before. That's what other people claim. Uh, so, prove it. So, they gave us a blinded data set for their 2014 2015 uh, clinical um, uh, patients that they already knew the outcomes to, but we didn't get to see any of that and said, okay, tell us what's going to happen. So we ran that through the uh, model. They had predictions that were based on uh, some of the tools that they'd used in the past, and um, uh, you know we compared or ranked up against that. And in every single disease category, and we're focusing on about 40 or so disease categories, um, we were um, almost uh, on parity with what had happened, whereas all of their predictive uh, capabilities had fallen way short in terms of identifying those patients that were going to be significant utilizers and were going to have significant disease. So we proved that in that particular instance based on that data set and, and are now doing the same thing going forward live, as it were, Uh, to identify the patients, and it's maybe worth just sharing that process because it will sort of speak to, you you know, how this works and how this is different. So analyze the group and say, who are these individuals? And you can find them, and you can rank order them based on who's going to have the most successful, the the best possible outcome with some clinical intervention and what that clinical intervention is. And... They, uh, uh, those individual patients are then uh, contacted, um, and because of the program that they're working in, they reach out and offer essentially a free health uh, evaluation service to say, hey, we'd like to see you, it's uh, you know zero cost, because ultimately these patients are gonna turn uh, their balance sheet from black to red because they're gonna cost so much in the future. At least that's what they believe. They bring them in, and then they'll fill out those gaps. So where there's missing pieces of information, those are targeted, HB1AC, uh, you know, good example, fill that out, whatever else is missing, and then rerun the algorithm to confirm or refute whether that was a, a good identified patient. First of all, that's good medicine, but you can't do that with everybody. That's part of the problem. You know, we've got a limited set of resources. So instead of doing it for everybody, you do it for the people that we think we can have the maximum impact, uh, both, you know, clinically but also financially. Those two are a- equitable in this particular instance. And in their, their instance, um, you know, the vast majority of the patients, you know, confirm the finding and then they're routed into the program um, and passed off to the clinician to say, or to the clinical group that's gonna treat them um, and uh, you know, mitigate or prevent the disease from progressing, uh, along with, and this is important from my perspective, the supporting evidence that says why this patient, because when you look at this patient compared to the, the other 20 that I see in clinic, they look very similar, why this particular one? So the science and the evidence as to why they were identified, and then importantly, um, the supporting evidence for the intervention that's going to have the maximum impact. And, you know, it's ranked. First intervention, here's what you should do. And not just here's the list of things to do, but here's why.
0: That's micro-CME, it's education. I'm sorry, can you take us through a a specific example? Um, You... You run this algorithm for Banner Health. You get a list of people who need stuff done. Tell us, tell us about a high impact patient, a high utilizer, high cost patient, um, one, that, one that will become a high utilizer, high cost patient. Tell us h- how you figured out that was the patient to target and, and then what the specific interventions were. Because, yeah, it's nice to fill in all the gaps and get the hemoglobin A1C and everything, but that doesn't necessarily. Prevent the patient from going ahead and having a heart attack or a, you know, stroke or risk of amputation or kidney failure or whatever. Uh, right. Try and make this real for us, Nick.
1: Yeah. So 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 let's pick and and uh, you know just for clarity's sake and PHI and all this. This is entirely made up data, but you know, uh, comparable to the to the process. So um, we identify Mrs. Jones. Mrs. Jones appears first on the list. Um, of uh, patients uh, who are at risk of coronary artery disease, um, and, con- and Mrs. Jones is contacted um, and asked to come in for a health assessment. Uh, the missing pieces of data um, are then filled out by the clinical team. that's you know typically uh, coordinators, uh, population health uh, team that will essentially assemble the necessary uh, content. Um, That will include, uh, you know, lab testing. It might include some vitals, um, you know, basic uh, information that may be missing um, that then completes. And then the algorithm reruns, confirms that this is still high-value patient. She has, um, you know, significant risk of developing coronary artery disease. And the intervention um, in this particular case, uh, would be uh, putting her on anti uh, antihypertensive, an ACE inhibitor. So that's passed off to the team that's dealing with that, along with the supporting evidence. So let's understand some of the elements of that, because I think in isolation, um, you know, not fully explaining the process. But why an ACE inhibitor? and why Mrs. Jones. So in the case of Mrs. Jones, looking at all the data, there could be another patient that's very similar, also has high risk of coronary artery disease. But in the data set that we analyze, we find, uh, for example, that they are um, uh, uh, not showing up for appointments that are being made. Um, And, uh, you know, in the sequence of data um, uh, that we capture about them, whilst it's not published scientific evidence, the fact that they don't show in our assessment based on the history of the three years uh, suggests that that patient is probably not a good target for intervention because they're going to be non-compliant, for example. Same, for example, with um, opioid prescription. If there are regular repeat filler of opioid prescriptions, they may not be a good target. And whilst you know, that may be unpalatable for some, that may be some of the reason. And there are others as well. So we look at all of that, and that's why we identify that individual. Why then the ACE inhibitor? Um, well, so when we look at the clinical evidence, and you know, typically for many of these patients, it's not a single disease. Um, But we look for the most valuable intervention, and there's not one, there's multiples, um, you know, and uh, weight reduction, uh, BMI reduction is bound to feature or is is typically going to feature. But that can be quite hard. Um, It's also very difficult um, uh, to, to actually action with some of these patients and, by the way, is going to take an extended period of time. We're looking for a quick intervention. So based on all of the knowledge, the science, uh, the validated uh, um, uh, data that we have in the evidence, uh, evidence data set, um, this one intervention will save you. And then we put a money. There's a value to it that says, in this particular case, if you can get this patient onto an antihypertensive compliant um, we're going to save about twenty thousand dollars, for example. That's a big, significant opportunity. And then each of the patients subsequently will be similar, but there'll be less savings. Uh, or you know, uh, it, so it goes in rank order: the maximum saving, the maximum intervention at the top.
0: So I want to, and that's great. Uh, it, but it sounds like you're actually, in a way, cherry picking. You're picking the people that are. The ones that are going to be the easiest to uh, end up with a good outcome. I want to come back to these patients that, <laughs> that kind of got discarded because because they were tough. Um, is, is this just a starting place for the company, or or do you see that eventually that person who is non-compliant? And I was going to ask you if you include other kinds of. Um, of uh, psychosocial uh, type of uh, information into your data set. So, for example, kind of the hotspotter stuff. Here are people who live in a neighborhood where uh, health outcomes happen to be bad for a variety Mm -hmm. of reasons and then apply or or work with another company to to apply interventions because – I get it that it's, you know, you don't want to waste time on somebody who really isn't going to, you aren't going to be able to move the needle on, but if we can't figure out how to move the needle on these uh, people who are non compliant or opioid addicted or, uh, you know, live in bad neighborhoods and can't, you know, go out and exercise, whatever, whatever, whatever those more difficult reasons are, um, then we're not really going to end up saving the kinds of money that we're going to need to save in order to apply these kinds of interventions across you know the population of, of the entire country so so that's exactly
1: right so the, the the first point I would make is that we don't discard them we just say that from from our perspective of the focus of what we're trying to do so remember we're answering a very narrow specific problem which is how do you turn an at-risk population so let's take Medicare Advantage as an example and turn it to a profitable activity And I know sometimes people get upset about profit, and, you know, I could even be one of them coming from the NHS, which is nominally free. It's actually not. You know, it troubles me that people perceive things to be free, but they're not. And the reality is we have a limited block or a limited set of resources. So it's not that they're not interesting, shouldn't be treated, none of those things. That's absolutely not the case. I would be deeply troubled if that was the case. But what we're doing is saying we're going to focus on this very narrow set um, who we understand, based on the science, we can identify and deliver this specific saving that adds up to a huge amount. They're the ones that essentially cause lots of cost, and we know that that intervention would be successful. But for the others, could we, should we? Absolutely. Absolutely. But let's do them afterwards because if you aren't profitable, you can't persist. I, I mean, that's the harsh reality of healthcare. It's not free. We have to allocate our resources. But hopefully, as we get better at this, and one of the things that I think this will do. Is induce a level of trust and much more of a an interaction with the health system that's similar to, um, uh, you know, the Boeing engineer that sits in Seattle that communicates with the captain on a flight from San Francisco to Tennessee, and says, "Hey, I think you've got a problem with your engine over here. Um, number two's running a bit hot." Let's say, um, we're doing the same kind of thing, but we're going after those specific patients and offering positive intervention to change the course or the outcome so that they don't become high cost, so that's the financial implication, but by the way, that's entirely equitable to clinical outcome so if we don't induce all of the, the high cost, we're actually saving them disease, saving that catastrophic descent into coronary artery disease and uh, congestive heart failure and all those things that come with that um, you know, change in, in health status. So they improve. And then we didn't spend that money. Now we've got more money to spend and invest in the other patients. And some of those groups are well addressed. The high-risk groups, I think, are already addressed. Even some of the, the very low risk where, you know, we've got healthy outcomes and healthy programs, And, you know, you're right. Some of this is is, um, SDOH. It's it's the um, uh, daily living activities, your zip code, all of those. How can we impact that? If we can free up the resources instead of dealing with this catastrophe after catastrophe, so not doing wellness care but, you you know, actually sick care, we can change the equation, and now we can invest and actually get more value for all of these other patients. So it frees up resources ultimately.
0: So uh, we're just about out of time, but I want to close oh, Christy, then. Really? <laughs> with, <laughs> yeah, the time flies when you're having fun. But I want to close with uh, what what's always my most important question is this all sounds really good, but how do you know that it actually works, that it actually is altering clinical courses and that you're actually saving money? And, um, not just because maybe you've done some internal study, but have you got any published studies that get closer to proving that what you've described that sounds great is actually doing what it's supposed to do?
1: Yeah, so, no, we we absolutely do. Um, we have uh, several publications, uh, you know, in well-respected journals that essentially outline this. We've also got, uh, you know, uh, a marquee customer that is using this that has validated it against their data and proven this out, so um, we 've got a, a, some uh, publications in plus one that talks about the utilization of some of this data and the prediction and you know I, I said i 'd come back to genomics, and i know we 're out of time, but I wanted to mention that the foundation of this was originally genomics. The problem with that is that that data is not available, and it was very hard to insert in um you know for the gaps So we're focusing on the data that's available. But as soon as the genomic data comes in, we're already positioned to be able to articulate the impact of that as well. So, yeah, we've got published studies, uh, scientific uh, uh, journals, uh, as well as customers saying this actually works. This is uh, changing the equation and allowing us to be uh, essentially uh, surviving um, this uh, at-risk world that we've essentially created with the ACOs and so forth.
0: And well, so I said it was the last question, but I do have uh, one more question. All of this sounds really, really expensive. Um, how are you? How are you funded? How are you able to pay for the development of this amazing clinical tool and um, all the new people that have been uh, hired? Uh, are you and, and not just how are you were funded to get to where you are, but um, how are you doing now with customers and revenue? And we'll make that the last question. So
1: um, we have a model that charges uh, per member per month. I think the value proposition is so positive in terms of the return on investment. Uh, You know, that's the beauty of this and and the beauty of focusing on those patients that cost the most. If if you prevent that, you can essentially justify this on a, a return on investment very quickly and easily. As far as the current financial status, uh, you may have seen the announcement around the uh, uh, fundraising uh, round uh, Series C. Uh, that was successfully completed that allows us some uh, scope to be able to build out the team and expand the team to uh, get the message out, um, as well as obviously having our marquee client and other clients and several others that uh, we currently have in the pipeline uh, that for us uh, you know, will continue to allow us to both uh, deliver and also uh, develop and um, you know expand this offering, uh, so that it's not just those um, uh, you know limited group of patients.
0: Well, uh, this is all really exciting, um, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to explain in great detail um, how much more powerful this approach is than the kinds of approaches that we applied in the early days of population health management, which certainly were a big step forward compared to the way I was trained and probably you were trained to practice medicine, which was you just saw the patient that was in front of you, and if they weren't in front of you, you never thought about them. So you're um, trying to make this invisible patient visible and help to um, prevent um, bad outcomes because you can now apply... uh, hopefully meaningful um, clinical intervention. So it's all very exciting, Nick, and I really want to thank you for joining us, and uh, I hope you enjoy your new journey with Base Health.
1: Thanks very much, Pat. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, especially one of the great uh, leaders and innovators uh, in in our space. So uh, always delighted to spend time with you.